Having a Gas is the podcast that chats to the great and the good of the creative industries. And in particular, finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for cooking to, for dancing to, f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with John Corner, the Chief Digital Officer of Salford. John began his career by shipping off to London to become a record producer. But after becoming intrigued by the technology of music, he headed back up north to assist Manchester's redevelopment as a leading digital city. Hello there. How are you doing? I'm all right, sir. How are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah. Is this the uh, the John Corner working from home space there? <laughs> yeah, it's completely anonymous. <laughs> yeah, I can see. There's no uh, no windows or anything, so we've got no landmarks. No, nothing at all. Um, I'm in my little study. Um, uh, this is the only wall that is not filled with books. And um, so I was getting too many people saying, oh, you're showing off with all those books. So I've just gone on to the other wall. Have you noticed that every uh, MP or anyone of a similar standing who does a talk to Zoom on the news has all their books behind them? <laughs> I know, I know. I, I'm the same, unfortunately. I've got so many, um, just over 3,000 in this room. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and yet we're being tantalised and uh, not shown them. So, um, but what are you, uh, is this your, so this is your workspace during COVID. What's normally keeping you busy at the moment? Because you've normally got quite a lot on your plate, haven't you? Yeah, I've been working on um, smart city uh, initiatives. You know, prior to COVID, we were in a very strong position in terms of uh, building a smart city alliance unlocking media city as a super connected space but really driving 5g networks and uh, connected devices narrowband iot um really really exciting stuff untethered vr um, autonomous vehicles all of, all of that really high level interesting tech but also very clear social inclusion citizen centric angle as well which um which is you know completely at the center of this digital Salford digital yeah. strategy. Um, during COVID, those that the appetite, the public sector appetite for, for that level of innovation, those applications, has just rocketed. So there's a whole new conversation now. Where, whereas before I was very much facing the tech sector and evangelizing that in the public sector, it's it's flipped, you know, it's actually being pulled now. So so public leaders are saying um, what can we how how do we manage our our cities, our urban environments, our spaces, how do we support our residents um, to build back better, to get to work, to get to school, to you know, return to some level of normalcy? And how do we use technology in ways that um, supports them and is safe? And you know, the, the, the idea of an internet of things has been around for, for 10 years, but now really in a, in a strange, perverse way, COVID has kind of made that bubble to the top. And that's, there's a genuine kind of pan-UK appetite to look at that uh, and accelerate those, those applications. So that's what's been occupying me, all good stuff. Lots of staring at screens, lots of long, lengthy discussions, lots of documentation and paperwork, but a tremendous collegiate working in one direction, kind of family style sense of working together, which I'm really, really enjoying, to be honest with you, Greg. It's fantastic. Brilliant. So that's there's a few things to pick up on there, but one is definitely that the coronavirus lockdown has definitely shone a bright light on the fact that we are tech and internet dependent. Uh, but now 
to a degree under lockdown uh, that the infrastructure is just creaking underneath the demand. So it's uh, we all need to be on Wi-Fi all day, every day to have our to, to get our work done, and it's totally doable to get the work done. But we've only just found out that we need more bandwidth, we need more uh, space. And is that what the five G project is all about that you've been working on? Um, yeah, I just I just want to challenge that a little bit. I don't think that UK networks have been creaking under okay. demand. Yeah. We don't. I think. What's been exposed by the COVID crisis is that there are significant portions of our population in the UK who are simply not online yes. or not digitally enabled, and and we haven't got a plan to 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 help them. You know, prior to COVID nineteen, it was you know, can you afford it? You know, how much can you afford? Okay, there's fibre in the streets, but can you afford fibre to the premises? Can you afford? you know, a £60 a month, you know, multi-channel package with Sky TV. Um, and there are, you know, a fifth of all UK households are mobile only. Right. You know, that means we've got a whole swathe of the population who are dependent upon their mobile phone, and that's their only connectivity, and it's probably a pay-as-you-go sin. Now, that's where I think we've seen real vulnerabilities uh, come about. And if you're not connected, it means you. In, in a lockdown like this, it means you can't shop, you can't connect, you can't talk to people, or if you do, it's going to be expensive. And suddenly all of those pressures start to come to the fore. And I think that's the bit that's been creaking, and that's the bit that we need uh, a different kind of model to tackle. And that's kind of my big focus, really. How are we going to build a new digital inclusion project? Or oh, we can't just go back to... You know, once we're out of lockdown, we can't just go back to well, the market will sort it out. You know, good luck. You know, buy your own, buy your own connectivity package. Yeah. Hope you. You know, Stephen Fry was it Stephen Fry, the comedian uh, last year said, um, you know, the future health of the nation will depend upon um, you know, their internet connection. And he just threw it away as a you know as a joke. And um, how true that that's become. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah. There are, there are some amazing things. You know, we've been, I've been as well. You know, and certainly lots of my colleagues on the country have been talking to um, primary care providers and trying to get them to think of video consultation and triage over digital. And that's been quite a hard conversation. But during COVID, it suddenly just exploded, and it's now completely normal to contact your GP over video or have that total triage over some kind of digital platform. So those, that kind of barrier, that kind of um, institutional bureaucratic barrier, is disappeared. So the challenge now for for tech communities is how do we build on that? How do we make it more enhanced? And how do we make it more inclusive? Yeah, right. you, you can talk to your GP, but if you if you're not connected, then how are you going to do that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So before we proceed any further, because there's so much stuff to dig into here, um, for those uh, if anyone's listening who isn't familiar with you, see, I know that you wear two hats because you're chief exec of the landing, but you're also yeah. Salford's chief digital officer. And yeah. so I wondered if you just give us a bit of background on what those two roles entail. Okay, well, I, I set up the landing in 2013 as a tech hub, um, and the, the 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 plan back then was how do we how do we work with Media City? How do we make Media City or support Media City to be a real ecosystem and not just this big shiny space for you know and TV? Yeah. Um, and I was really keen for. Um, to inject that sense that the me notions of media, the media world, was already changing completely, you know, um, and, and um, uh, 
traditional broadcasters who are moving over into a tapeless model around that time. So there's a lot of energy around how do we become this new kind of content industry. Um, and um, it's interesting to see, you know, the Netflixes of this world actually kind of zoom away and not ask for permission on that and have just gone straight to consumers. But already at that time, those, those ideas of building platforms, building new tech, tech uh, partnerships around content was very much where the landing was going to play. So um, I set that up and we were within six months of opening, we were 100% full and it was a fantastic, you know, explosion of energy and activity. And that's, that's grown and grown and grown over the years to, it got to a point in uh, 2018 where I was quite bullish about it. You know, I'd go and give talks and say, we've just, uh, we've just contributed 90 million uh, GVA to the local economy. You know, we're, we're, we're part of the UK's uh, tech nation uh, um, uh, GDP framework. We are uh, one of the biggest tech hubs, blah, 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 blah. Um, but when I was talking to city councils and city leaders, it, the, the message wasn't landing as comfortably. And the, the, the notion that there, um, that there were parts of our society, parts of our communities that weren't affected or interested or even benefiting in any way from this you know, explosion of new technology and this growth in opportunity. And that kind of started to trouble me. And then I started to think, well, what is the landing in Media City contributing in terms of social equality, social inclusion, opportunities for disadvantaged groups, you know, how are we connecting with schools? And that became my focus. I started really then to work with schools in, in, in different ways. And, and really um, from that, I was, um, I, I, an opportunity came to um, apply for the CDO role for the city. And um, I did, it was a, a lengthy process. Um, but that social inclusion piece and being able to turn tech um, in a new way to, to bring people into those opportunities. That was very much the centre of it, and I uh, was um, delighted to be appointed. Um, it then made sense for the landing to be subsumed into that portfolio. Um, so I do see, a, I do see um, I'm on a, a kind of traje trajectory, and COVID's kind of uh, caused that a little bit, where I'll be letting go of the landing and concentrating 100% on on the CDO role because the landings, we've got an amazing team and kind of it can run in whole new ways. And um, much as I enjoy running the landing and being part of it, I can see myself slowly letting go over the coming months and, and maybe within a year's time, I'll be just hopefully concentrating 100% on to me what is the real challenge, which is next generation networks. And how, do we, how do we do Pan City policy? Right. Yeah. So with the um, there's a point that keeps coming back, which is the social inclusion point of the of the digital vision for Salford. And I think that's where I sense the uh, let's say the, the the traditional northerner in you um, yeah. trying to generate opportunities, because um, are you concerned that with the we're moving into a very tech dependent world and an increasingly complex one? And I, is there a concern that the distribution of success will steepen so that it's harder to get in at the bottom? I don't think there's a bottom or, or a top. I think that hierarchical sense of it is it, it doesn't work for me. I, you know, to answer it in, in more simply, I think if you want to work in tech, um, you can be an entrepreneur. You can, at a very young age, say to yourself, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start my own company. I'm going to 
I'm going to skill myself up the same way that, um, you know, maybe 20 odd years ago, young people saying, I want to be in a band, I want to be a musician. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's bloody hard work. Quite frankly, you've got to do some hard yards. You don't just pick up a saxophone and go, Oh yeah, you just blow down this end and wiggle your fingers. I've got it. So you've got to actually, um, got to actually do some work. And what, um, what preoccupies me is, are we giving the inspiration, aspiration to young people so they can see, oh, God, I can actually do that. You know, that's only three clicks for me to get to that place. And um, that message really is not necessarily permeating the school system. The school system is very much, how do we get young people? How do we safeguard them when they're in the building? How do we make sure they're looked after? How do we get them through a process? And how do they get a qualification at the end? which is going to get them a job. But, you know, what does that mean really in the digital world? Because you don't necessarily have a job. You have a, a series of career opportunities where mm -hmm. you are developing your skills in the digital world. And we need to think of it in a different way. And, and Salford is, has produced its own digital talent pipeline. So you will see uh, over the next year, us start to actually initiate those aspirational programs for young people and expose those the ways that they can start to get into industries and how that actually how that actually works you know if you look at the telco industry for example you know only nine percent of telco engineers are female and the reason for that was traditionally if you wanted to be a telco engineer it was dirty it was messy it was heavy lifting you had to climb poles you had to you know be able to dig you had to lift massive drums of copper wire all of that's you know gone now you need to understand fiber, you need to understand exchange, you need to understand network. Anyone can do it with the right training. It's not a gender-specific role. And that gender neutrality opens a whole new playing field. And there's not enough young women, and I've got two daughters of my own, there's not enough young women who can see those opportunities and say, well, I can be a leader. I can lead in the field. I can be skilled in the field. I can lead in that. That's that's what gets me out of bed more, and that's what's exciting about the CEO role is that you can really get hold of those things and then and start to evangelise those in schools and through our school system. So, what are the things that uh... I'm, I'm talking at you at ninety mile an hour? Then <laughs> it's okay. It's what we need because um, oh, this is presumably the uh, the nuts and bolts of the job. And so, one thing I want to know from from you is. Um, Two angles on the Media City thing, because obviously uh, that's where I work, so I've got a vested interest. Did you look at me then? Did you go... Uh, apologies, I should have given you the, the piece or the, the Winston Churchill victory, uh, depending on your outlook. Um, <laughs> yeah, Media City, um, two angles I want to explore. One, what's the long-term vision in your mind for it? Is it going to be like another Silicon Valley, but for the UK? And with the uh, discussion about opportunities... Uh, across the board for younger people what are those entry points for young people what should they be looking for to get into the tech industry of media city okay they're two different things is media yeah. city going to be another silicon valley no and um, the idea of another silicon valley is 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 mad really you know because silicon valley was of its day you know Sil silicon valley has grown up in in the you know the steve jobs era that yeah. those kind of massive that massive focus on, on scalable tech for uh, 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 the new internet age. There's not, why would you want to do that again? It doesn't make any sense. But what Media City has the potential to be is an exemplar for what our urban environments may look like, what a future city may look like in terms of how it manages data, how it manages energy, how it, how it keeps itself clean, how it's efficient. 
why can't we use that space? And it is a city. It's a, it's a city that has a um, central building management system. It's a city that generates its own electricity. It's a city that manages its own cooling. It's an absolutely amazingly unique space with 20 million meters of fiber point to point everywhere, super connected, DAS and platinum rated uh, network architecture. And on top of that, 5G networks. So you have a, a miniature city that could be a UK exemplar for how we start to modify, change, support our legacy urban environments to become smart, to become safer, to become cleaner. I think that's a great direction of travel for Media City, as well as being, a, um, you know, why not, why can't it be, um, a, a continue to be an amazing content and creative space as well for creative industries. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. And the second question was, how do, how do young people get in? get in? And I think the landing is the doorway for that. And, you know, the clue is in the name. You know, it's a landing point. It's a, the start of your journey. And that's the, the scouting in me coming out, you know, because, you know, Liverpool was the landing stage for, for the rest of the world. And, and we need that landing point in Media City for people's new journeys. You know, how can young people, first of all, come here and, and feel the space and feel inspired by it? And I see that with young people. We have... Um, Groups coming in regularly into the land and something, you know, some of those kids have had challenging backgrounds. Some of them are, um, you know, have, have been excluded as well. And they come in and they're just amazing. They, 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 they think, okay, this is quite serious. I could be part of this, you know, and suddenly their, their own self-esteem self, self and, and their own vision of themselves as being part of something starts to, starts to take hold. And that's, that's the way we can do it really. And it's also, Colliding them with young entrepreneurs like yourself, you know, uh, who are only just, you know, a few years on from them to say, look, look, look at that guy over there. Look at that, you know, that woman over there. She started her own company. We've got some amazing female tech entrepreneurs in the building who themselves are role models. So it's, it's the seeing is believing piece. And the landing, I think, will be a real um, uh, hub, if you like, a, a kind of hot space for that, for that collision of, um, uh, opportunity for young people and that's i'm determined to make that make that the case really over as soon as we get out of lockdown yeah of course which uh, <laughs> well you know uh, that could be next week considering how much um what how much attention the government is keen to divert away from their per, you know particular scandal at the moment but um oh, yeah gee whiz that's um yeah what what a what a load of nonsense that is one rule for one one rule for one anyway but, let's, let's not be political no, no, I'm keen to, uh, to avoid that. So one thing um, I was interested in is because I'll let you know on a secret here, the way we're having this conversation, despite the fact that I live in the city centre of Manchester, is not over Wi-Fi because our, uh, in my view, the Wi-Fi is not reliable enough to, to support this kind of thing here because we don't have um, fibre where we are. Um, and uh, so we're, we're, we're stuck sort of just below one megabyte a second for um, data exchange, what I've done is I've tethered to my Vodafone-enabled smartphone. Um, have given me the very generous 60 gigabyte data package on Voxy. Um, point being, I know you're involved with Vodafone and the 5G project, and so I wanted just if you could tell us a little bit about what the plan is, what the partnership entails, and where it's going. Uh, yes, yeah, so so um, it's interesting that you've tethered your... Um your computer. I went to a community center um, last summer in, in Salford and they were running um, a skills session for, for, um, for homeless 
to homeless people who, who are coming to this centre, being fed, and then being supported on, on, you know, doing simple things like just registering, you know, uh, um, for, for health for, at, the, uh, at a GP or, 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 or beginning to think about how do they, how do they start to get back into employment and how do they connect with the digital world. And then um, a fantastic session, but I couldn't see any APs around the building. I couldn't see how they were connecting it all. And the young lad who was running the session with, with, with 10 um, um, uh, clients in this session, he was te- tethering everything off his mobile phone yeah. because there was no connectivity in the, you know, in the, in the, in the shelter, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, um, it goes back to what we said right at the beginning, you know, it's, it is about inclusion and it is about making sure there are no not spots. But let me talk about Vodafone. Vodafone, uh, I've partnered with Vodafone to build a 5G innovation center. So 5G, we all know that 5G is, is, um, is going to make your, uh, uh, is going to bring in a new generation of mobile phones. And it's also going to mean that we can download content and work with content in new ways. But the real, the real market for 5G and the real revolution, if you like, is that it will be a network of networks. It will connect physical assets in new ways. It means that we can do that massive IoT piece, machine to machine connectivity, um, in a way that's reliable and late, you know, with very low latency. And to me, that's the real opportunity. And that's the nature of our partnership with Vodafone to actually use our innovation centre in Media City to test that connectivity, that IoT connectivity, um, to connect um, devices, physical spaces, um, to measure um, people flow, uh, air quality, um, to do untethered VR uh, in Media City, to be able to see how mobile edge compute actually does work, to be able to look at how 5G networks link in with legacy LTE networks and 4G and how you move seamlessly from a 5G to a Wi-Fi. So all of those interconnected networks are gonna be part and parcel of every, um, every urban center within two or three years. But Media City has it now, so it's an opportunity for us to, to test and to question and to explore innovation and to get new companies coming through with new products who can, can start to, um, to really uh, innovate around the, the you know, next generation networks. Yeah. So that's the nature of the, the, the partnership with Vodafone. Amazing company and um, tremendous kind of collegiate support for young entrepreneurs and new IP coming through. It's really exciting. Yeah, I'm, I'm keen to see where it goes. At the um, level of the consumer, and I don't know if this is, because obviously I'm quite poorly educated on how digital networks and infrastructure works, and I think I'm not alone in that. I think Carl Sagan said we live in a world uh, supported by science and technology where almost no one understands science and technology. So you know, most of I really don't know how the internet comes through the floor and then into my Wi-Fi box, but my suspicion is that um, that's, uh, is going to be seen as an inefficient way to get people connected in the future. Do you think it's all going to come through the through through the air, so to speak, or do you think that's going to continue and be upgraded and refreshed? Oh bloody hell, Greg! That's a complicated, <laughs> uh, abstract question. L- let me let let me cut through it. You know, um, networks. I've got two things, and those two things have been around for a hundred years, and that's cable and wireless. No, those two things are still here. Yeah. Um, 
And, and 5G networks will still have those two things. So you can't have a 5G network without fiber. Um, at some point, you've got to be able to backhaul it, and fiber's going to be around for at least another 100 years. Um, and we haven't yet unlocked the potentials of fiber. The amount of data that you can actually push down um, a fiber connection is phenomenal. And at the moment, that's only constrained by what's at either end of that network, how are we actually managing those switches and those connections. And it's those bits at the edges of the network that will start to really ramp up over the next few years. So we will see a situation where we will start to take for granted a very fluid connectivity, a pervasive connectivity where we, wherever we are. Um, uh, but then how much data do you really want? You know, if, mm. if I was to give you... You know, um, you can get, and we've done tests in Media City. You know, of of of, of almost a gigabit download to, to your mobile phone. Wow. Um, and what what would you actually do with that? And and they, these are the um, these are the difficult business questions, really, because how fast do you want? How much do you want? What is the um, what's the business case around that? You're going to pay for all of that data, and, and if you can do that, what kind of phone have you got that's going to be able to manage that data? And what cloud services do you need to to keep your 27,000 photographs that you've just taken that month? Yes. Um, we're, we're heading into a world where we need um, different business models and different ways of structuring our relationship with telcos. And the real opportunity, the real business case is in connected networks. So autonomous vehicles, cleaner management, building management, making our physical assets and our physical environment connected and safer and more efficient and more productive. I think that's the real opportunity. I think we'll get to a point where we go, yeah, it's fast enough now, that'll do. <laughs> I hope so. I can, download, I can download a Netflix movie in three seconds. That's fine for me, thank you very much. Yeah. You know, machine to machine connectivity is down to milliseconds, and that that is um, where the that's where the real opportunities will lie in how we connect our uh, productivity base together in new ways. Right. Yeah. Because if you take the example of what we're doing right now, we're talking over Zoom, and the 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 latency is just a remarkable human achievement. I can't believe we don't jump for joy every day to say you and I are talking as if we're in the same room. But the fact is. <laughs> The, uh, the data rate has to be compressed down to 1.8 um, bits a second, I think it is. Also. No, it's not that. I've tried to quote a stat, I don't know. But the point is, it's quite a low fidelity. You know, your voice doesn't sound like you're talking to me in the room and the, there's a bit yeah. of blur on the vision. So do you think we're going to get to a place where this is going to seem pretty seamless? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at the moment, we're, we're all kind of excited because we can do a very really low level um, connection over Teams or Zoom or Skype or whatever, whatever platform we choose. Um, if we decided that was going to be a broadcastable 4K image, you know, with balanced audio, then we'd all be in deep trouble. Um, however, if you look at things like Match of the Day, where they're all distributed or have I got news for you, some of those links are certainly not going over Wi-Fi. You know, they've got really dedicated links there and, and proper broadcast quality pictures so they are distributed and they are isolating but the the audience experience is at a much higher level and i think that will start to over the next three five years will start to be the norm we will will be able to have that really high def um connection of the video and we'll look back at, at, at these you know zoom calls and think however did we cope with yeah. those blurry images um though i do look better in a blurry image <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, well, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but on Zoom, there's a, in the preferences, you can click enhance my appearance, which I've always uh, done. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now the ship sailed on that one for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, um, uh, with Zoom in particular, I spoke to um, Rory Sutherland at Ogilvy recently, and he was giving his view oh, wow. on why Zoom has just taken the market during covid for video conferencing and as a tech guy why do you think that is because obviously we've had skype forever we've had teams facebook whatsapp everyone was already in this space but zoom has just cut through yeah it's it, the answer is really easy um, um it's the number of clicks you yeah know, how many clicks do you have to to how many times do you have to press your computer for it to work and um uh, uh, you know the guys and gals who built zoom know their audience and you know, I've got I've got two teenage kids now, um, and they have got the attention span down to a few seconds. So they if 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 it doesn't work straight away, it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, and I love Teams, and I love all the other the, the all the other packages. But you know, you need to register, download, click, put your details in. Whereas Zoom is, is plug and play, click and go. So I think that's it. I don't think it's any better in terms of its you know interface or what it can do. Um, you know, and it's had a few security issues, uh, but I honestly think it's that it's the fluidity of it that that has, has really given it that market edge. Um, yeah. And there's a lesson in that for everything, really. That um, we we you know, if you look at the amount of uh, focus that banks put into their online banking packages and how um, more sophisticated they've become and more secure, but also how instant, you know, it used to be so long-winded, didn't it, even 18 months ago to do your online banking, and now it's it's really... Kind of, yeah, you have kind to remember of, your three passwords and then your two backup questions, and then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, security, security, and all of that's good, but we've got a generation coming behind us who who, who want everything absolutely at, mm. at, the, at the button, and Zoom kind of plugged into that side, guys, I think. How do you... Uh, that's one thing uh, um, I'd be interested to hear your opinion on. How do you see tech solving the problem of infinite passwords because obviously i get an, i get a thing saying you you are using a set a certain set of passwords for everything and you really in an ideal world need a different one for all 127 things you have an account with that's not going to go away unfortunately yeah right. i mean um uh if you're going to use a migrated password at some point um that becomes human error and human error is the is the you know the number one problem in any security issue. You know we talk about hacking and getting into systems, but somewhere along the line, someone's made a mistake, um, and it's those little errors that very often become the gateway into into um, into systems and into platforms. I think. Um, you know, it, we, we could talk maybe on another call about sovereign identity, but we'll yeah. probably get to a position where your identifier is linked to you in in, um, in a more coherent way. Yeah. Um, and we've already seen, you know, very clever biometrics um, on, on our mobile phones and on my 14-year-old. When, when I confiscate his phone, I can't open it because it'll only open with his yeah. with his eye, you know, so it's really frustrating. <laughs> I can't see it. So, but I, you know, that will, you know, that sounds a little bit minority report, but it doesn't have to be. You know, we 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 already accept it in in the health sector that we've got, you know, a personalised, you know, 
um, uh, identifier for, for ourselves. And there's a lot of talk about blockchain and, and, and putting those sovereign identities in some kind of blockchain. But that's probably the direction of travel where you are your password. Um, we're a good few years off that yet, but I, I, can't, I can't see any um, for the time being. We're going to have to live in that world of managing. Yeah, managing and you, you don't see like thumbprinting as the solution or something like that, right? Yeah, you know, ask me that question before COVID. No one wants to touch anything anymore. So, yes, yeah. You know, I don't know. I don't know where the touchscreen industry is going to is going to head to. All yeah. those people going to fast food places to to press their burger. Oh no! Yeah, you know, socially just, distant. Uh, you'll have a, a two meter thing to press the screen with soon. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. One thing I'm quite excited about, back to the Media City thing, is obviously that's where my office is. And one of the big hindrances for our um, uh, business in terms of just getting a, get, getting new clients is most of the uh, – a, a, a large proportion of the industry is in London. And so what they want to know is, are you round the corner in Soho so I can get to the studio and get the session done? And so with Zoom in particular, that's something we're quite excited to do is to be running sessions remotely, just screen sharing. And instead of having to have a long – uh, delay time between revisions can you change this edit for me they have to wait for the edit to be done and then critique it we're going to be able yeah. to work on the fly with london from media city which is exciting i think it's brilliant and and um the music industry i think um uh i'm, I'm by the music industry you know it's a it's a it's a wide you know it's a very broad church in terms of film music and advertising and, and, and all of those other opportunities um, I think that really benefits from remote working, and that's that's an old story in in, in creative creative industries, distributed working in the game sector and in visual effects. That's been that's been around for a long time. So you've got whole swathes of the industry who are used to working in a remote way, um, and and platforms have become very sophisticated at versioning as well, so that you are you understand exactly what version of a, a product you're working on and what point in that life cycle you are at so i think there's some fantastic um there are some fantastic platforms out there for managing content be interesting to, to take some of that thinking and migrate it into another sector you know such as health or or productivity um because you'll know and i know and i've i've worked on um, i've worked on post-production for for tv and film and i know that um you can have several hundred people at once all working on the same you know block as it were, and multi-layered audio, multi-layered visual effects, different versionings, instructions from the director, instructions from the VFX director. And um, you can waste a lot of money if the versioning is not right. So that co-created process is very much part of our industry, music, games, film, TV. Um, I think that will continue to, and 5G will really ramp that up as well and, and produce cost savings. The other side of that though, Greg, is the human element. And then um, that's a really tough one, isn't it? Because if you want to get a performance out of someone as a director or as a, a musician in the studio, then that human side of it is absolutely vital. You're not going to be able to do that. I don't think in the same way over the zoom call. I'm, I'm, Willing to be proved wrong there, but there's a sterility to it that that worries me a little bit. And you know, you'll know, and I know that um, great performance in the studio requires you know that real mentoring and interaction from the producer. And uh, to get that performance, you know, you can't hide, can you, when you're in front of a microphone singing? Right. Um, you've got to be able to deliver. And how does the singer 
reach into herself or himself and say, okay, this is, this is how I'm going to perform that song. And very often it's a, a mentor or a producer or somebody who's actually, you know, helping them and saying, I've got your back. There's trust here. Let's work on it together. And um, I think that human interaction is vital as well. Let's pick up on that for a second, because the reason you have that knowledge and that experience is because, uh, as far as I understand, you've spent some time in the music industry. I did indeed, yeah. 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 So tell us about that. What were you doing? When was it? Well, I, I signed as um, a recording artist to EMI back in the mid-80s. Um, uh, and that's all I ever wanted to do, to be honest with you. I, I, you know, from a very young kid, I just wanted to make records uh, not be a, not necessarily be a pop star, but make records. Uh, the yes. idea of holding or having, you know, a record that I'd made was kind of the goal, really. I just wanted to do that. And uh, I remember even in primary school doing the, um, you know, the show and tell day where you say, what is it you're going to be when you grow up? And we say, I'm going to make records. Um, but when I finally did get into um, some of the, the, these amazing studios in, in London, I just fell in love with the, the tech really and I remember going into uh, into uh, Odyssey Studios and into Made of Vale and and seeing these mixing desks and, and having that interaction with the engineers and seeing what the capabilities were and I just I thought this is what I want to do and I became obsessive about tech really so I dropped the whole idea of wanting to be in a band and just said okay this is what I'm going to do I'm going to work in studios and then um, I did that for um for about seven years, absolutely, absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. But um, I tell you what, I wasn't very good at Greg. I wasn't very good at that human side, uh, and I think that's why um, really I moved away from that and into post-production and video. I got attracted by another piece of tech that was slightly more, you know, structured. So I was very good at programming. I could. And my job for, for a couple of years was taking, you know, uh, the, the the three minutes pop song and turning it into you know the 18 minute dance floor yep. uh, piece as well and and um, so I was way ahead in terms of programming and I could listen to the song and, and listen to all those multi-tracks and go that's a really interesting bit that's an interesting bit almost like a, a kind of intellectual jigsaw you know game of, of repositioning bits of music and um, uh, but I didn't I didn't see that as a direction of travel you know uh, there were you know, since then, that's kind of become the norm. You know, there's some amazing um, artists who do just that. And um, but I, I still thought, oh, I, I need to be George Martin. You know, I need to be mm. Stuart Levine. And um, that's the bit I was crap at. Really. <laughs> well, the bit where the, the the producer could not just be on the desk, but they could get in the control the live room with the artist and then shape the performance and shape the music. Yeah, I, I was so good at managing. Um, um, programming, text sequencing, computers, uh, setting up multi-channel, doing 48-track digital mixes, and I loved it, and I, and I loved the creativity around that. But but I then I, I, I approached human beings in the same way. You know, it was like yes. three, two, one, sing, sing, okay, off you go. And you cannot do that, you know, to to artists. You've got to, you know, that you've probably only got three takes in any, you know, singer. Yes. Um, or anyone who's trying to perform, and uh, and I, I, it took you, I, it took too long for the penny to drop for me that I was just um, that you know I was seeing them as an extension of the machines. Yeah, and I remember I remember being in in Rack Studios in St John's Wood, and Stuart Levine was in the next studio, and these are you know these expensive studios and times money, and I'm 
mixing a, a track and I noticed his studio was always empty. And Rack is one of the few studios that's got um, windows so you could see daylight in you know, the yeah. trees outside. And I'd see him walking up and down. He was making a single with um, uh, Mick Hucknell. And, um, and I said to his engineer, why is the st- studio empty? Why isn't he producing? And he said, he is producing. I said, but he's walking around Regent's Park. And he went, yeah, man, he's producing. Yes. And that, he was really working with his artists and talking to him about the song. And I just didn't get that. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to get the tech working. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, it's, uh, there's famous stories about Rick Rubin. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He founded uh, Def Jam, yeah. And uh, he's had huge complaints from, uh, for example, uh, Corey, who's the lead singer of Slipknot saying he came to the session like three times and didn't touch a single like piece of the desk, what we pay him for. But um, yeah. people say his brilliance is that, you know, the engineer will do the desk thing, but he just, you know, uh, if it's a singer songwriter, one mic, one plug into the guitar and just play like you're at the open mic. And then they get the best performance out of them. Yeah. I get, how do you, how do you do that? You know, that is, that requires a level of, um, empathy and connection with your artist and uh, I was always in too much of a hurry really I, I just kind of you know would say to people okay three two one go do your thing um, and you know for some people that worked um, and I was very good at working with drummers I really loved working with drummers and I I could spot you know a really talented player in you know 30 seconds a minute you would know you would get a little tingle you go okay this is a really good drummer you know this this is an amazing drum um, uh, so yeah, I, I kind of I loved working with percussion and, and, and drummers, um, but I my, my Achilles heel was getting those great performances out to singers. Really, I think. Yeah. Um, so if if you'd have been in a different uh, timeline, if you'd have been um, a teenager now, let's say you would have been on the sort of Ableton push, just programming nonstop, making like the electronic music. Yeah, maybe. As as I've grown older and wiser, and I've I've been successful in business, I've mm-hmm developed you know much better people skills and, and working and inspiring people and helping them and not not necessarily uh just being completely target driven all the time actually thinking well what what makes what what's the strength of of this team you know who what, what talents has this person really got and are they really in the right place how do i help them grow their career and i, re- I really enjoy doing that you know and and in the last five years, I've mentored over a hundred businesses, and I love doing that. Absolutely love it. So yeah, if 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 I could, if I could have taken that skill set I've developed slowly over the yeah. last couple of decades and transpose it into my younger self, I think I would have been um, a, a really good producer. Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's um, that is definitely universal. It's something we all do, isn't it? Uh, we say, ah, oh, if only I'd have known then what I know now. But, yeah. 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 Yeah, I've got, no, I, I got very much seduced by uh, video tech. I remember being in, I was working in a studio called AdVision. Um, I was house producer there for a short time. And uh, they did a lot of um, film and video work, and I became completely fascinated by this, this technology and, and um, non-linear editing around video was just in its infancy. So I, I, I really kind of got seduced by that, and I ended up... Um, um, moving in and setting up my own post-production company which was really successful and, and I just love the, the idea that you can cut things up and you can create these these films and these adverts or you know dramas whatever it is um, 
and that the post-production process is is wholly creative, but it's also quite insular. You know, you can just lock yourself in uh, and and then present it like you know making a cake or something. Yeah, Superb. yeah, that's something I'm um, excited about for the for the future of Media City. I'd be interested to see what you think about this because um, obviously the the lot, as I understand it, is going to double in size um, over I think the next five years, and. Um, We're probably not that quickly, you know. I mean, uh, it, it will double in size, and there's no doubt about it. And there's, um, uh, uh, but that that kind of is almost when you say double in size, you almost think like a Simpsons cartoon or something, just going. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you know, if it, it, it's it's slightly more strategic than that, and there are spaces in in and around media city that will strategically start to change and develop so there'll be a, a doubling of the um the overall footprint in terms of office space and and uh creative space but not necessarily that growth but outwards but, you know the, the the landlords do own most of the land around us so you know media city's not landlocked but that's more of a 50-year vision ah got you rather than a five-year vision. Yeah, yeah, I mean, as soon as it escaped my lips, I noticed that it's taken about five years to build a couple of the buildings across the road. But um, I can see how it's basically, you know, there's a long-term vision for the project. But in terms of the uh, the kind of businesses, maybe not naming names, but is there a kind of a talent that you'd like to see attracted to Media City? I know that we've had some good companies come up from London and move their headquarters to Salford. Are we looking for more of that? Um. Well, you've got to contextualise Media City inside Greater Manchester. Greater Manchester's on a journey. You know, it will it will be um, a world innovation city. You know, it's it's climbing those league tables, um, and the type of talent that we need is that cr- creativity around um, new technologies and the applications of new technologies. So it's not just coders, but it's people who can actually envisage new applications and be able to make those developments, those applications work. So it is a technical skill. It is a programming skill, but it's also a creative and entrepreneurial skill as well. And I don't see Media City as any different from the rest of GM. In that sense, everybody's on that journey. And what Media City does have is the playground, the physical assets for those entrepreneurs, those um, creative people those people with new ip or new ways of doing devops those new ways of of linking cloud technologies to physical applications on the ground those um specialists will have a playground and media city could be the most amazing tech playground for actually quickly deploying or failing fast your product rather than looking for a pilot or a test bed somewhere which is kind of a a slow process in any other environment media city is kind of plug and play so I, I do see that that's the way things will go. That's definitely a new angle that I've learned through this conversation in particular. I've never considered Media City as, well, like you said, a tech playground uh, yeah. and somewhere you can test the city of the future. You can indeed. So, so for instance, you know, since COVID, um, the UK legislation around e-scooters is now being re-evaluated um, because they're clean. Um, but at the moment, they are... Um, you know, there, there's no legislation that would allow you to take an e-scooter out, out and about in our cities. You do see it if you go around Europe, you see it in the States. Um, but Media City is a private city, so you can simply do e-scooters immediately and they could talk to the network, so the network could actually 
constantly manage how you're where you're leaving your scooter and if anyone else could pick it up. So I do see that kind of application. Media City's ready instantly. You could just deploy tomorrow if you wanted to. So the fantastic capacity in Media City to be that um, instant deployment space, that living lab, a living lab really is rather than playground, a living lab for 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 new technologies or for the application of new technologies. That's a great bit of copy. There's one more thing I'll uh, <laughs> pick your brains on before we uh, wrap up because obviously we're in we're in uh, coronavirus year. When this gets released, this could be a few weeks away and everything could have changed. But it's um, cast a light on the need for health tech and developments and uh, innovations there. So is there anything in it, you know, any nutshells that you can see that's something we need or this is something we are working on or something we could develop as a result of this coronavirus crisis? Well, again, Manchester's leading the way, really. You know, Manchester's doing um, amazing work on um, patient records and data management and being able to um, fix the plumbing around data. You know, if you've got multiple hospitals, multiple GP surgeries, um, you've got multiple data points that aren't always joined together, and Manchester has actually coalesced all of those, so you can actually... From, from birth onwards, you can start to manage health, the, the health of, of people and their, their records and their interactions with the health service in a, in a more conjoined way. So the data management is a big piece. Um, and, and, uh, and connected to that is being able to do longitudinal studies around health conditions and to be able to target your resources in a very specific way. Um, I think... The opportunities post-COVID will be on real-time data, and that's that's the that's the intellectual shift, if you like. Because if you look at the health sector, it's it's very often about um, R and D data silos, where you can get really really clear clinical records of a patient's journey from A to Z, and you can start to innovate new drugs, new technologies, new um, um, processes and practices around specific illnesses and that's all fantastic stuff what that doesn't do is tell you if somebody's just fallen over or somebody's just had a seizure right now or somebody's not drinking water or, or somebody's not taking their tablets all of that real-time stuff um, there's no way of managing that and now I think that's going to be the new direction of travel how do we extend that that care into our communities in a distributed way, in a digital way, so that we can actually connect with people around their long-term illnesses, managing their own personal health in new ways before they rock up at A&E or hospital or become a very expensive um, um, clinical case in our hospitals. Very often we've got great data at the point where somebody's in trouble. How do we actually get upstream on it is going to be, I think, the real focus. And I'm, that's the area I'm particularly interested in working. And we've run, you know, health tech accelerators in Media City, very much focused on that citizen tech, citizen safety, and the future of health, the future of distributed health. I think that's going to be the, the huge opportunity for the UK. Great. Well, um, I look forward to seeing the progress, seeing how it goes. And, uh, you know, uh, this has been enlightening. So uh, thanks for your time. And uh, hopefully we can uh, do it again when there's some uh, post-COVID updates. Brilliant. Cheers, John. Thanks, Greg. Take, Take care. care. Bye.